The debate over nearly $1 trillion in infrastructure planning is the talk of Washington. But as the uncertainty about severe weather, health, and market events persists throughout the countryside, will rural America get the investment it needs? That's today on Field Posts. is a DTN Progressive Farmer podcast that dives deeper into the most important trends in agriculture to explore the business's cutting edge. I'm your host, Sarah Mock. Lawmakers here in the nation's capital seem to be coming close to an agreement on a vast infrastructure plan that includes funds to invest not only in roads, bridges, levees, and dams throughout the country, but also in rural broadband and green energy. Farmers in rural communities are paying close attention to how these talks play out and what the final package might mean for everything from market access to ethanol to the safety and livability of America's small towns. This week, we're joined by DTN editor and reporter Russ Quinn and DTN staff reporter Todd Neely to dig into where the infrastructure conversation has been, what the final package might look like, and what it could mean for rural life. Right after this word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by MyDTN. In today's environment, it's essential, more than ever, to get the most current and accurate information to help save your valuable resources and continue to be profitable. Get access to all the information you need to deal with this change from DTN. As the leading independent, trusted source of actionable insights and market information, MyDTN gives you accurate weather forecasts, the most extensive database of grain bids, and the most timely news and analysis from our award-winning news team. These features and more are available 24-7 via desktop, laptop, and any mobile device to be with you on the go. Learn more at MyDTN.com and start a free 14-day trial. Now, back to the show. DTN reporters Todd Neely and Russ Quinn are joining us today for a discussion on a really enormous topic, infrastructure. Todd, I want to start with you. This the the conversation about infrastructure and and making some big policy investments in infrastructure is not new. There was actually a big conversation about it during the Trump administration as well. Um, and you know this, yeah. a lot of our infrastructure in the United States is way more dated than just like five years old or, or, or 10 years old. So I wonder if we can start off this conversation by kind of where has the infrastructure conversation been in the last several years and, and how has, you know, it changed or shifted under the Biden administration? Well, yeah, Sarah, thank you. Uh, you know, I, I think it's, uh, it's such a broad issue that, um, you know, I think the real challenge for, you know, reporting about this stuff is really narrowing it down to figure out, um, you know, where rural America really needs, you know, the, the bolster and the infrastructure. Um, I think the one thing that keeps coming back in my mind is, is roads and bridges. I mean, that seems like an obvious, uh, an obvious place for investment. I think what's changed between the Trump administra- administration and the Biden administration, um, just my sense is that the members of Congress seem to be more, uh, more willing to work with Biden. I don't really know why. I mean, I know there's a lot of politics involved in just about anything that goes on in Washington, but um, I think the discussion has really shifted uh, not just infrastructure, but as well to green energy. Um, you know, we have a lot of things going on in green energy. There's a lot of uh, different debates in Congress about 
what that green energy future might look like. And the thing that um, the reason I bring up green energy is because it's often one of those things that uh, when you talk about infrastructure, that it's rot, it's not really delved into by policy, policymakers and politicians. Um, you know, and I think that may be what's different now with the Biden administration. I think the discussion about broader infrastructure issues, whether it be building new bridges and roads, I think it's also brought into the discussion, uh, you know, the future of green energy. You know, we've had quite a run in, in biofuels for the past decade or 15 years. Uh, it's really made, it's been a, quite an economic uh, boom for rural America in many respects, you know, the birth and, and the growth of corn ethanol and biodiesel. Um, I think we're at that next step now where the discussion is going to center on what's next. I know people are scared to death in the biofuels industry at the talk of about electric vehicles in this country. And especially with President Biden, it's something that he's brought up quite extensively. And uh, I think on the biofuel side of things, people are concerned that their, you know, their uh, picture in this whole thing is going to be overlooked. And so I think that's, that's what's changed. I think the green energy side of it uh, and maybe the politics have changed in Washington. To what degree? I'm, I'm not sure why, but it seems like uh, we might getting might be getting to an infrastructure uh, package that will go through Congress and uh, and be signed by the president. Yeah, I, Russ, I want to bring you into this as well because I think you know I, I'm curious for your perspective. I think one of the things that actually stayed consistent between the two administrations in terms of infrastructure is a focus on rural broadband. We've been talking about rural broadband for a long time, it feels like already. And, you know, it seems like such an easy win. And there has been some investment, both the USDA and, and elsewhere in Washington in rural broadband. But give us kind of the update. Does it seem like there's more energy building or that, you know, this the, the current administration is actually going to get some more things kind of across the finish line on that rural broadband front? Uh, I think it's, it's, it's kind of a twofold deal in the fact that, you know, before this administration, there was a lot of investment being made into rural broadband all across the country. Um, I, I know even before, before the, the uh, pandemic that there was a lot of investment being made um, grants and, and things of that nature, uh, allowing small telecommunication companies to, to bury the fiber optic cable that runs uh, the internet to uh, rural areas even before the pandemic and thus, thus before the uh, Biden administration. But, uh, but during the, uh, the election, I, I know that I wrote an article about uh, some of uh, Joe Biden's talking points uh, that he wanted to uh, do once he got president. And a lot of it really focused upon uh, improving rural internet. And his, his, his points mainly focused, not necessarily on uh, bearing fiber optic cables to run internet to rural areas. His was more in line with investing more into 5G cellular signals and uh, that would provide internet for you know, rural areas, not wired internet, but uh, be an improved cell phone signal that would, would carry the internet into areas that, uh, that uh, the wired internet would never be able to go to. And of course, there was some discussion back and forth that some groups thought that was a good idea and other groups did not because uh, on one side, you know, the, the wireless signal can pretty much go anywhere, but on the other side of the coin, groups that wanted the, the fiber optic cable buried said, well, you can't 
even though it's wireless in name, you still need to have wired components. So if you're already gonna have wired components, why would you just not bury the fiber optic cable? So, you know, so there was kind of two competing thoughts going on at the same time. I want to take, I want to bring you both in for this next question and, and talk a little bit too about, you know, I, we've touched on both. Yeah. The biofuel question and, and what, and broadband, which I think are both at Todd, as you pointed out, kind of very forward thinking and, and kind of about the future of what our economy might look like. But, you know, you both mentioned as well that a big part of this, including a big part of the price tag is really just investing in, in roads and bridges and other pieces of infrastructure um, that are existing, you know, investing in deferred maintenance and, and, and keeping up kind of the, the standards, you know, I think the quote that's flying around is about, you know, 40% of bridges are past or 40% mm -hmm. of our infrastructure is like past its lifespan, its proposed lifespan. Um, so I'm curious, you know, especially as we, extreme weather events become more common, flooding becomes more more common among, uh, along, you know, not just the Missouri and the Mississippi, but kind of throughout the Midwest, um, other kinds of extreme, you know, rain events, wind events, those kind of things pick up. How are those, I don't know, are you all seeing both on the policy side and then also, you know, among farmers and communities, are people thinking about how you know, it's, it might not even be enough to just like, you know, repair roads and bridges or repair this infrastructure, but it actually needs to be made, you know, more safe with more extreme weather possibly in mind. Yeah. You know, Sarah, I, that's interesting because, you know, I, at the beginning, I spoke about the flooding that we had here in Nebraska uh, two or three years ago. Um, one of the things that really came to light, you know, and I, and I live in Nebraska and uh, Russ lives in Nebraska and I, I maybe, you know, I hadn't paid as close attention before, but there were some old bridges and some old infrastructure out in North central Nebraska. that was basically just run over entirely. And I mean, these were, these were dams that had been in place for, you know, 50 to hundred years. And some of them were not even functional to begin with. And so, um, yeah, the whole point about having to play catch up and just make repairs. Um, I think that that particular storm here, at least in my mind, and that, you know, that, that uh, all that flooding we had, it kind of brought to light the fact that, uh, you know, if we're going to start having more heavy rains, we're going to start having more flooding events, uh, whatever the case may be, uh, the old style of infrastructure is probably not going to cut it. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, if, if we're going to go in and make rural infrastructure a priority and uh, build and replace and repair, we have to consider the possibilities of, you know, more extreme weather events. We have to consider, you know, at least in some rural areas, I think people are seeing more population, you know, come in, you know, from time to time. And so it's a really, it's a really difficult issue. And I think even now, you know, when we're talking about money, the dollar amounts that are thrown around in Washington, you know, about what Republicans and Democrats and the president and all of them are going to be willing to spend on these types of projects. Uh, just in my mind, off the top, it doesn't seem like the money that's being put into it's going to be nearly enough. I mean, we have areas of the country uh, you know, like I said, North Central Nebraska is an example where longtime dams had been there for a very long time and now they're entirely gone. Um, so, you know, that, I mean, that's just one small example, but I'm sure there's other examples all over the country that, uh, you know, if we're going to build out for the future, I think it's going to have to be bigger and better and more bold than what we had in the past. And I, I would uh, concur with Todd, but uh, 
I'd also throw in too that it's not just government agencies facing these type of issues if we're going to be facing more extreme uh, weather. I know that our colleague Matt Wild uh, wrote about farmers in Iowa that had uh, a lot of structures, mainly grain bins, damaged from the derecho that we saw last August across uh, really started in eastern Nebraska, crossed the entire state of Iowa and crossed into uh, Illinois. But um, I know that uh, he wrote an article during all this about farmers uh, when they were rebuilding that they were, first of all, some of them didn't even have wind insurance on their, uh, on their grain bins because they never had never needed it before because they never had ever had a massive windstorm before. So first of all, they had to get insurance now that included wind insurance on their buildings, specifically grain bins. And the other thing too was Matt had reported that uh, farmers were building grain bins that were much more structurally, uh, sound, I don't want to say sound, but more structurally uh, fortified maybe would be the better word that would withstand wind better. So, you know, here's, here's farmers that have been in the land for generations and have built grain bins for probably generations as well. Now having to a invest in uh, more insurance for these structures, and b building more uh, building structures that would be able to withstand wind. And I know that's not really the same vein that we were talking about with the government, but you know those are increased costs for farmers directly. Absolutely, no. That's a great segue because my next question was, you know, I think. If we want to look at the national scale, again, the thing that seems to be holding up conversations right now is that is the price tag is who's going to pay or how are we going to pay for, mm-hmm. for all the investment that needs to be made. And, and Todd, it's interesting to hear you say that, yeah, it seems the, the price tag that they're looking at right now is astronomical and it still doesn't seem like maybe enough just because of how, you know, how long it's been since we've made a big infrastructure investment, especially in rural infrastructure. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's the price tag question is also what like a lot of rural communities come up against. We can talk about, you know, communities in the Delta that are in in part responsible for, or actually probably more up the river than down the river, but um, responsible for their own levees or responsible for their own dams and how, you know, as rural towns have gotten smaller, that those have become harder to afford and harder to afford to maintain. Um, and farmers, I think themselves also experience that as, yeah, as they have to invest in like even things like roads on private property. So I'm curious, um, either from your reporting or from just like your observations in the industry, how are you guys seeing people start to grapple, whether that's individual farmers or communities or lawmakers, how are people thinking about or grappling with that question of cost? Yeah, Sarah, that's a huge issue. I mean, as you know, um, you know, rural America is always looking for opportunities to expand markets, to expand off, you know, economic growth. Um, and I think that, you know, that's the big thing. I mean, it's, you know, rural America, you know, by and large is, has been declining for quite some time. Um, and it's, it's always an age old question, you know, how do you keep young talent and, you know, in your, in your rural areas, how do you, um, how do you attract new businesses? I mean, there, it's, it's a question that, you know, that even goes beyond agriculture. I mean, it, it's something that I don't know that a lot of communities know how to, how to approach this. And I think, um, you know, that's why they, that's why we hear a lot about, uh, you know, people defending the renewable fuel standard and, uh, you know, all the, all the back and forth that goes on with that in Washington and other places. I think, 
you know, people look at that policy in particular as something that's been quite successful. It's, uh, you know, generate a lot of business, a lot of success in rural areas. And uh, it's a tough question. I, I don't have an answer for it, but I, I do know that, uh, you know, we have to see more market opportunities for farmers. We have to see good trade policies. We have to, uh, you know, good tax policies. I mean, there's a lot that goes into it and it's not, you know, it's not an easy question to answer. Yeah, I, I would certainly concur what Todd has, has said. Uh, from my own experience, I, I live in a rural community about 35 miles north of Omaha. And as far as uh, the county that we live in, it's kind of a better community county to the big city of Omaha. But I live on the line between that county and another county. So then that county is pretty, is extremely rural, uh, essentially one big town and a bunch of little towns. And I know both counties have really struggled to maintain and, and uh, uh, build bridges and uh, roads and highways and things of that nature. But I know one thing that they have done is, in a, at least in my particular area, is that when an old bridge gets to the point that it can't be safe anymore and you can't withstand semis and big tractors and combines driving over, but a lot of times the county will close that road, tear down the bridge, and then replace it with the culvert. Of course, the culvert is, is a metal pipe that goes under the road that the water can flow through. So I, I think a lot of rural counties have gotten good by necessity at scraping, scraping by as, I don't want to say cheaply, but as inexpensively as possible and getting rid of bridges built during the, the 30s and the Works Progress Administration and replacing them with you know, basic structures of, of culverts to allow water to continue to run on the roads and are less expensive is something that I'm sure a lot of rural counties, not just in eastern Nebraska, but all over the Midwest have to do because, you know, they really don't have much of a choice. The ingenuity of rural communities for sure, but it's, yeah, there's a good question there about whether that's, you know, are those the, is that the most ideal investment? Is that, you know, the, the best case situation or scenario for that issue, or is it just the cheapest one? But, um, yeah, I want to circle back to the question of, of energy too, Todd, because I, yeah, I think a lot of people aren't, um, don't necessarily think about energy as part of infrastructure. Um, maybe when you think of a pipeline, like a big international or, or multi-state pipeline that might occur to people as um, infrastructure, but not necessarily biofuels. I'm curious, talk, talk to me about how biofuel producers and, and you know, corn producers um, are, are hoping to get you know, ethanol and other biofuel investments into this infrastructure plan? And does it seem like it's working? Well, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I think uh, you're always going to hear um, from ag and, and ethanol, you know, the need to build out. Um, when we talk about infrastructure with ethanol and biofuels, it's really, it's really about, uh, you know, potential pipelines. You know, we, a lot of these ethanol plants, um, they, they produce uh, CO2 and then they sell the CO2 for a variety of uh, uses. Um, so there's a lot of opportunities with that. And we're seeing some of that occurring, uh, especially in this past six or eight months, where we've seen a lot of announcements of companies that are building out uh, pipelines to, to transport CO2. And so that's one example 
Um, also, you know, just providing more biofuels at the pump. And so we see a lot of talk about, uh, you know, installing pumps that can handle higher levels of ethanol and, and that sort of thing. And so, um, you know, I think it's, I think it, the bigger discussion here maybe is, um, you know, where, you know, where does ethanol and biofuels fit in, in the future? And, um, you know, it seemed to come up in the infrastructure discussion because that industry, you know, though it's been around for a while and it's pretty well established, there's still a lot of infrastructure needs that it has. And those infrastructure needs, if they're met, you know, they go directly to economic development in rural communities. And so, um, you know, it, it's a big thing. I know when the RFS came about in 2005, it was really, uh, it was really kind of kind of a gold rush. You know, people rushing out to invest in new ethanol plants and and that sort of thing. And I and I don't think rural America is willing to uh, to let that go just yet. And they want to get to that next level. Um, now, whether it's going to show up uh, in this infrastructure package in a in a real meaningful way, I don't know. There's a lot of talk about that. There's a lot of uh, a lot of interest groups that are pushing the Biden administration to. Uh, to include more of that in an in infrastructure package. Yeah, well, it's interesting too to frame it as kind of the the opportunity for rural um, in this infrastructure package. And, and Russ, I wonder if you could speak a little bit more to that as, you know, I think, um, you know, there's always a lot of focus when we talk about infrastructure on the cost and about, you know, where the most at-risk infrastructure is. And I think there's not as much focus on the fact that, you know, if we're going to be repairing infrastructure, if we're going to be building new bridges or repairing old roads or, you know, making these new investments in whatever that looks like, solar, wind, or, you know, whatever, um, that could mean a lot, maybe not a lot more jobs in rural America, but some more jobs. Like there's a real economic opportunity for for businesses and for um, individuals and, and communities near this infrastructure. Um, I don't know. Are people, do you hear people talking about that? Um, to somewhat ex an extent, I know from writing the uh, uh, broadband type of articles that that's one of the things that they, that uh, people tout is the fact that it would bring some jobs to rural, er uh, rural areas because it's construction jobs. I mean, it would have to be physically built, whether it be the fiber optic cables buried within the ground along roads, or if it's, you know, the cell phone towers essentially that uh, are wired, but not, or unwired, I guess, but really wired. So yeah, there there is some talk of that, but I think it, it's tempered a bit because of the fact that they would be temporary jobs um, I'm sure some people might stay once they you know, spend some time in these rural areas and find that uh, maybe it's good to be far away from people. Something that I think a lot of people have learned during the last 15 months of the virus. But um, but yeah, I think to a certain extent that uh, the jobs in a lot of people's minds would be temporary, temporary jobs. But you know, they look at any sort of anything with the government as far as when they build something it is going to take a long time to build whether it be roads bridges or cell phone towers or fiber optic cables and so i guess in one way you can look at it as short-term jobs but, but then the other side of the coin you can look at it as well you know how long it takes you know, any state or anything to build a road you know it takes them 
it seems like decades, at least maybe here in Nebraska, maybe that's just Nebraska thing. But so you know, in that in that side of you know, in that aspect, it, it, I guess it could be longer term. Yeah, I don't think that's you know, just Sarah. a Nebraska thing. <laughs> Go ahead, Todd. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, the other side of the broadband issue, and I think uh, it's something we, you know, we talk a lot about uh, technology and ag, uh, whether it be uh, planting and, and all these other, you know, high tech equipment that agriculture uses nowadays. Um, a lot of that is highly dependent on broadband. It's highly dependent on, you know, a high speed internet. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that can be done, a lot of expansion in business that can be done if these rural areas are allowed to have the same kind of access that, that you know, the cities across the country have. And I think it really does come down to that. You know, I think it always goes back to economic opportunities. And, you know, if you're talking about infrastructure, while the roads and bridges are, are very important, I think if you're talking about growing the economy in rural America, broadband is really one of the most hopeful uh, developments that we could see. Yeah, I, yeah, that's that's a very good point. When I when I wrote uh, an article last spring, uh, focusing upon the uh, rural families' battle trying to educate their kids and people working from home during the beginning of the pandemic, I interviewed uh, a, a farmer from Oklahoma, and uh, I think it's the North Central Oklahoma, but uh, her sister wanted to move back to their home area. Her and her husband farm the the family's farm and his, his sister and brother-in-law went out into the world and he had a good job and he, they wanted to come back home but they as part as as a condition for them to live anywhere and him working from home was that they needed high-speed internet good high-speed internet and they were going to come back to to the home area and, and buy a farm and her, and her husband was going to farm it and, and the sister and brother-in-law were going to live build a house on it and well, as it came down to, they, there was no good rural internet in that area. They couldn't guarantee this guy would have good internet for his job. So they ended up moving closer to Oklahoma City, which was like 50, 60 miles away from the home area. And they had to pick that area because there was a guarantee of good high-speed internet. So there's there's a perfect example of a rural area uh, missing out on uh, uh, investment into their area of, of farmland, uh, house, you know, building a house, and and that would you know that would flow down to you know any town close by that would uh, you know maybe would think about some sort of development in town as far as bringing people into the town and bringing more people, more economic funds. But it, it's not happening because they can't guarantee that there would be high-speed internet. Yeah, I feel like that is a, yeah, I've heard a, a number of stories like that, and especially during COVID, you know, as people were suddenly really interested in, in potentially living in rural places. But yeah, those limitations are, are real and uh, hard to overcome if you haven't already started to make the investment, but. And, um, and I will I will add too that you know I, I like I said I only live 35 miles outside of Omaha, the largest city in, in, in Nebraska, and up till last summer, we did not have high speed internet. We did not have fiber optic cable. Uh, we when I worked from home and when my kids started to have to learn from home last spring, 
we used a, a hotspot Wi-Fi device from our cellular uh, company, which worked good at times, but in other times it was it was not good when it was windy or it seemed like any inclement weather seemed to mess with it. And finally, our local uh, uh, local telecommunication company finally invested in fiber optic cable, and they buried it a year ago last fall, and then got us hooked up last summer. But I mean. Think about that. I'm 35 miles from Omaha, and I've waited 20 some odd years to get high-speed internet. What, what are these? I would call extremely rural areas: Western Nebraska, Western Kansas, Western South the, the Dakotas. You know, these farmers are, are in need high-speed internet, like Todd said, to run you know uh, precision agricultural equipment on their planters, combines. Um, run their businesses to upload, download, yield maps, um, perhaps uh, downloading, uploading uh, livestock data, their seed stock sellers of bulls. And so there's a whole wide list of, of applications that can be done if you have high-speed internet. But me, being 35 miles away from the largest city in the state of Nebraska, had to wait all these years to get it. I can only imagine what, in some of these really rural areas, you know, they're, I imagine, pretty down on the list of ways. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's always surprising to me driving around in, in rural America where, you know, there's a town actually like 65 miles from Washington, D.C. that just because of odd positioning and like the challenge of getting, yeah, of bearing that, you know, that those last miles of fiber optic cable can be so expensive that, yeah, it's a, it's a town 60 miles from Washington, D.C. that doesn't have cell service or high-speed broadband, <laughs> which yeah, is, I, I, is bizarre I, to think about. Yeah, and I talk to farmers once in a while, and you know, of course they complain about the lack of high-speed internet, but they also talk about the, just the lack of decent cell phone signal. And you know, obviously that dovetails with the lack of internet as well, because obviously they don't have good cell phone signal, they're probably not gonna have good internet as well, but but yeah, look at some of these areas that are just so far behind on what we would consider basic necessities or basic amenities, maybe would be the better word for many urban areas. I mean, but they don't they don't even have basic cell phone signal in some areas. It's madness. Um, well, I want to get into kind of the what's next, because I think one of the most important, obviously, there's so much need for infrastructure investment, whether it's in, you know, green energy or broadband internet, or just again, just maintenance on roads and bridges and making sure that the infrastructure is literally like safe to use and, and drive on and, you know, deliver products to market on. But um, I, but, you know, we've had these conversations before and they didn't pass, nothing ever really came of them. From what you guys have seen in your reporting, what are, are I don't know, are there good odds that something with infrastructure is gonna happen soon? Yeah, well, Sarah, you know, it's, uh, as you know, DC can be a guessing game. I mean, it's one hour to the next, things change, you know, can change dramatically, but everything that we've been seeing and hearing is that um, all sides have kind of agreed on an infrastructure package uh, somewhat. I mean, I think there's still some differences here and there, um, but I think by and large, I think this is probably the farthest we've seen this get. I know that, um, you know, President Biden's been out and about talking about the infrastructure issue. It was in Wisconsin the other day. Um, and so I, I think that, you know, I think we're at a point when something might get done. And uh, I would suspect that it's probably just the beginning. You know, like I said, I think 
Um, you know, the latest number I heard was like $900 billion in a, in a package for infrastructure. And that sounds like a lot of money. It is a lot of money. Uh, but when you look at how far behind infrastructure is and the condition that it is uh, in, in many rural areas, this is just basically a, the beginning. And so, um, you know, things can change, like I said, but I, I think we're probably as far, if not farther than we've been in quite some time on this. Yeah, I, I, I think I think that we're, we're much closer to the beginning than the end, obviously, that this is going to have to be, you know, one, one bill is not going to solve the problem. I mean, this is going to have to be a long-term thing. I mean, it's probably not going to be solved in two years, probably not going to be solved in 10 years. It might be something that, you know, each administration for the next 20, 30 years has to invest in to continue to improve everything because we've I'll just come out and say this, I guess. We just let things slide for too long. I mean, you know, you look at locks and dams in particular along the Mississippi and the Ohio and Illinois and those rivers in the mid part of the Corn Belt. I mean, these locks and dams are 80, 90 years old, even 100 years old. And they were meant for, you know, their useful life was 40, 50 years. So we're almost doubled their useful life. So we've, we've you know, kind of ignored this issue for so long that, the only way we're ever going to battle our way out of it is to have to invest in it, not two or five years or 10 years, probably. It's going to have to be 10, 20, maybe 30 years. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe not. But, uh, you know, for as long as we let this slide, it, it might take that long to, to get out of it. Yeah. yeah, and Sarah, I was just going to say, too, that... Um, you know, the other side of this, too, you, you talked about the safety issue. I think, as Russ well said, um, you know, we put it off for so long that there are areas, there are highways and bridges that are in really bad shape. Um, I would suspect, although I don't know the details of, the, of any package at this point, but I would imagine that safety has to be the number one thing, at least from the beginning. You know, if we can't get what we have up to at least a minimum level of safety, uh, I don't know all this talk about broadband and green energy and all this other stuff is really going to matter. I think we have fallen so far behind in infrastructure. We just have to get it up to a point to where it's, uh, you know, maybe it's a bit more manageable. Yeah. It, what a time um, in the last, you know, what, two weeks to, yeah, where what we're seeing in Florida and just, which is obviously like a, a private situation, a private building, but yeah, seeing infrastructure, what it, what it means when like a, when infrastructure gets old and when it's past the point of where it should have been repaired, it, it becomes truly dangerous. And we haven't seen, um, you know, I think in a lot of ways, because of how dated some of our infrastructure is, we've been really lucky to not have more disasters have happened, but yeah, it's a real concern. So I'm curious, um, coming out of this conversation, you, I, I, as farmers and folks in rural communities are watching the, legislation move through Congress and, and watching some of these conversations happen. I'm curious what you all are paying attention to and what you might recommend for those folks to pay attention to in terms of, um, you know, there's so much going on, so many conversations happening. What matters the most? Yeah, well, Sarah, you know, I think, uh, you know, one of the things that just occurred to me, it's, um, you know, a lot of times when these when these bills in Congress are, are worked on, you know, and compromises are made and, and so on and so forth, a lot of times, you know, we get we get stuff in bills that maybe don't directly relate to the to the subject matter, you know, such as infrastructure. I think the one thing that I'm going to be interested in seeing is, 
um, you know, not only what's specifically in uh, any piece of legislation, but whether we can point to, you know, some improvement and some betterment for actual rural areas. You know, when we talk about infrastructure, it's not just rural America. I mean, it's everywhere. And so I guess my one concern would be going uh, going from here on now is is whether uh, whether or not rural, rural America is going to get what it needs. And uh, I guess that's something we just have to keep watching. Well, that's, that's a good point, Todd, that uh, you hate to make it urban about urban versus rural, but, you know, there are more people in the cities than in the rural areas. And uh, squeaky wheel gets to grease if you if you understand that saying is squeaky wheel being the uh, urban area with more people in the rural areas. Um, I would, I, I'm interested, and, and Todd had mentioned that, that, you know, this is so much money, nine trillion or trillion, whatever you said the number was. Um, so what happens, so we go, we go down you know, 10 years from now, and we invest in bridges and roads and things like that. And, you know, maybe there's not enough money left over after doing all that to invest in things like broadband. And I know that, you know, broadband is just as important as, but when it comes to the safety of you know people just driving down the road, maybe maybe broadband investment, you know, if, if something's going to be on the chopping block, is it that? I mean, technically, people could live, live without uh, high-speed internet in every rural area and still function to a certain degree. But you know, if you don't have a safe road, and you're going to fall through drive down the road in a semi and collapse a bridge and kill a bunch of people, obviously maybe that is a little bit more pressing maybe than, than, than investing in, in rural internet. But yeah, that, that's what I would be interested in to see down the road, five, 10, 15, 20 years, whatever it would be, would be A, if there's enough money for everything and B, if there isn't, who who gets the short end of the stick? Is it, I'm going to guess it's not going to be road departments or bridges or you know lots and dams but it 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 might be rural telecommunication companies not getting enough money to expand the, uh, to the broadband into really rural areas yeah yeah but devil's in the details for sure and who yeah how that money gets meted out um well, I just have one last question. This has been a phenomenal conversation. I really appreciate you both taking the time. But um, last question is just, I'm curious, is there a story, another topic unrelated to infrastructure that you all are working on right now that you're excited about or that you're excited to work on this summer as we move through what the late pandemic and into maybe some kind of new normal? Yeah, that's a good question, Sarah. You know, there's never a dull moment in what we do. <laughs> You know, even in agriculture news, I mean, from day to day, things can change. Uh, you know, the emphasis on whatever the, the issue of the day can change. Um, but I think in general, you know, we keep we keep watching Washington, D.C. to see where, you know, federal policy is going on a variety of things. And, uh, you know, that's really no different now. I mean, we're at a point in time where uh, a lot of things are at kind of a crossroads. You know, what are we going to do about renewable fuels going forward? I mean, what are we you know, what are we going to do about tax policy? You know, that's another big issue in rural America. Um, so there's just a number of things out there. There's a lot of big ticket issues that just never seem to, to go away. But it seems like under the Biden administration, a lot of these things are really starting to come into focus. Um, you know, and there's a lot of uh, 
for a lot of chances to make some good decisions, and there are a lot of chances to make a lot of bad decisions. I wouldn't say I was excited to cover this, but one of the things I'm watching closely is the expanding drought in the northern plains and up into the Canadian prairies. Uh, not only me, but uh, several of our DTN colleagues have written uh, about it, several different topics related to the northern plains drought. Uh, I've focused uh, on the livestock side. Uh, uh, a lot of livestock producers in the northern plains have already liquidated their cow calves because a lack of forage due to a lack of rain and nothing to feed their cattle. And this was in June already. Normally, this type of activity went dry. It was in July and August, so it seems to be pushing up the time frame. Um, and I know a lot of the, the, the cattle producers of the Northern Plains are trying to find alternative sources to uh, feed their livestock forages, uh, such as small grains that are drought stricken that uh, is not going to yield a whole lot. And but there are issues of feeding those type of uh, crops to livestock as well because they've been suffering from the extreme drought and and uh, just now we, we talked about writing an article about uh, hay uh, the price of hay and then uh, more hay being pushed to the northern plains uh, from the southern plains and the more central parts of the plains even in, in further east of the, in the midwest corn belt areas so it, it it will be interesting to see what happens this summer with the severe drought because there are parts of north central north dakota that will not even get a hay crop this summer because it has been so dry there. So, you know, with no hay at all, and you're already starting to eliminate cattle numbers the way it is. It's a, it's a bad deal just spinning, spinning out of control almost. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, the, I feel like the common thread there is, um, yeah, just a lot of uncertainty as we move forward through this season. Coming on, any other big infrastructure-related topics or comments you all wanted to make, things that I missed, anything in that vein? You know, it's really easy to focus on roads and bridges, but I, I know that somewhere along the way, you know, there's going to be a lot of other discussions on a lot of things that we never even considered. You know, that's kind of the nature of the business, and I think um, – you know, we just kind of keep going on and, and see where things go. But I don't think infrastructure is going away. I, you know, this is, uh, you know, it's a new administration and, uh, you know, maybe the focus is a little different now, but I, I think this, uh, this particular time and period, I think has brought a lot more attention to the, to the issue. And I, I think that um, hopefully it's, it's gained some positive attention to where we're going to see more actions being taken and, and steps being taken to, to really, uh, you know, really build out like we should. I mean, it's, you know, like we talked about, it's been a long haul where we've let, uh, we've let our infrastructure go and uh, we just hope now that it's not too late. And, and some, something that one of the farmers told me last year when I was working on the broadband articles was she said that the silver lining, you know, that there is a silver lining of a worldwide pandemic, but she thought maybe the silver lining in, in the worldwide pandemic was that it brought a lot of attention to how bad the uh, rural broadband what really was as people struggled to, to teach their kids from home and work from home and you had stories of people driving to schools and libraries and even fast food restaurants sitting in the parking lot trying to attempt to use their wi-fi to be able to function and so anyway she thought that uh, if anything maybe the worldwide pandemic kind of push this issue to the forefront 
and there would be more investments uh, made for rural broadband. And USDA had a, had a number, like I said, grants and, and programs uh, under the Trump administration. It'll, it will be interesting going forward with the Biden administration to see if those type of uh, government grants and, and uh, loan forgiveness type of programs, both individually for people and uh, rural communication tech companies will continue. And if they continue, you know, at what type of funding level they would have as well. It's going to be more, it's going to be less, it'll be the same. Uh, I don't know. It'll, it'll, it'll be interesting to see what levels, if the programs continue at all, and, and what, what levels they, they are funded at. Todd and Russ's extensive reporting on the topic of infrastructure or their work on a range of topics from biofuels to machinery, visit dtnpf.com or subscribe to the monthly DTN Progressive Farmer magazine. This episode of Field Post was brought to you by the team at DTN Progressive Farmer, with special thanks to Russ Quinn and Todd Neely. This episode was produced and edited by me, Sarah Mock, with support by Greg Hillier and Kylie Swanson. And a big thanks to all of you for listening. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And until then, remember, the future of farming is here. This episode of Field Post is brought to you by DTN Ag Weather Station. Are you looking to get more accurate, hyper-local weather information? By gathering weather and agronomic data directly from your own fields, DTN Ag Weather Station supports you when making targeted decisions around expensive or high-risk activities like chemical applications and irrigation. DTN's Ag Weather Station can be purchased for as low as $9 a month depending on your current customer status with DTN. If you're looking to increase your weather accuracy while saving time, please visit DTN.com.